This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Ingress. The 2020 Sydney Autumn Carnival will reach its zenith with the Star Championships at Royal Randwick over two exciting days, April 4 and April 11. A total of $20 million in prize money will be distributed with eight Group 1 races programmed. April 4, the Star Doncaster, the TJ Smith, the Australian Derby and the English Sires Produce. Co-feature will be the New Haven Park Country Championship Final. Saturday 11 features the Longines Queen Elizabeth Stakes, the Swept Sydney Cup, the Australian Oaks and the Coolmore Legacy Stakes. Co-feature event is the Polytrack Provincial Championship Final. The Championships, April 4 and April 11, the Grand Finals of Australian Racing. In part two, Fred Kersley is going to tell us about the battle he had with the authorities to gain his thoroughbred trainer's licence. Had it not been for the support of one particular committee man, Fred, you may have been in dire straits. Oh, I w- well, I would have been. I just wouldn't have got a licence. And, um, you know, I battled for, it seemed, uh, for four years, I'd say. I applied, made an application every year, and I was always dismissed. Um, the racing folk, the sporter kings, looked down on harness racing in those days. And um, I I couldn't understand why it should be so, and um, I just kept applying. I, one of the reasons I was transferring over is not the f- only the fact that I was getting a bit older and losing my edge as a driver. I had a bit of ego, I guess, <laughs> and I and I thought the race the harness trainers were as good, if not better, than the thoroughbred trainers because I thought they were more hands on, <laughs> and I wanted to have a crack at it. I wanted to see if I couldn't train the thoroughbreds as well as I could train the harness horses. So I was determined to, to keep applying for a licence and they were equally determined not to give me a licence. Um, they looked, thought it wasn't a good for the image of the Sport of Kings to have harness racing people infiltrate the, the races. And a guy, Jeffrey, Dr. Jeffrey Miller, who QC, who was on the committee at the time, and he said, a gentleman, you cannot keep refusing this man his licence. It's against the law. You must let him have a licence. And so eventually I was granted my licence. And for a little while I struggled. i got to say to you, at the Gallops, I, um, I found it pretty hard to win races. I was dealing with poor quality horses. But I persevered as much as I did, as as I, as I talked about earlier, as um, persevering as a harness racing trainer. And then along came a horse called Northerly, and I was more than welcome in the, in the thoroughbred coat. Everyone was pretty happy to have me there. But i re- forever grateful to Je- Jeffrey Miller for giving me that opportunity. And, and following that, some other harness trainers have ventured into the world of the thoroughbreds, particularly here in Western Australia, and done remarkably well, just, you know, proven their ability to train at, at you know, either, either code. Your first winner at the Gallops, Fred, was a horse called Little Hero at Belmont, 19th of July, 1989, ridden by your good friend Danny Miller, who yes. has just announced his retirement and yes. reluctantly at that. Now, Fred, I don't know if we're giving him up here, but he's got to be in his early 70s. 
Oh, yeah. yeah. He certainly is. And um, interesting with Danny Miller, he rode the first thoroughbred I started uh, at a racetrack called um, 2J, I believe, and um, unplaced. Uh, it was a little hero and then came back to town and won at a Wednesday meeting on little hero and then Danny rode northerly when he won the railway stakes. Mm. So my association with Danny Miller goes back a long way. And uh, he, like as I said, first ride in a, 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 one of my horses, first winner for me and the first group winner for me mm. belongs to Danny Miller. Yeah, lovely. Northerly came into your life about 10 years after you started with the Thoroughbreds and because of ordinary confirmation, he wasn't presented in the sale ring. Now, you bought a half share, sight unseen, out of the paddock, simply because you liked the potential of a stallion called Sir Heed. Sure, that's correct. Now, Sir Heed left tough horses. He was um, an underrated sire in my view. Um... I I took the horse out of the paddock, you know, on the basis of the Sir Heed factor, um, sight unseen. And that leads me into another story, if you like. We all, we go to the yearling sales and we look at these horses and we assess their confirmation and the good looks and their pedigree and, and, and we make a valuation and judgment on that as how much you're going to pay for that particular animal. Sometimes, as you know, in these modern days, one million, two million or even more. But the thing you're looking for when you go to the sales that you want to see is something you can't see. It's it's a thing that you can't see that makes a good horse, and that's what made Northerly. He wasn't an oil painting, but he was a tough racehorse, and he had a heart and a, the courage, uh, you know, and and, a, and the ability. A, a, quite a few riders rode him and said, "Look, he doesn't feel like a good horse," mm. but by golly, he was a good horse. His breeder, Fred Neville Duncan, retained a share and the horse raced in Neville's colours all the way through, the yellow Correct. with the black Maltese cross, which became very famous. Yes, they have become very famous. And, of course, Nordley probably started that uh, um, dynasty, for, I guess, for Neville Duncan, if you like, and then soon after Nordley came, uh, uh, another horse came along called Morasco, mm. who I would argue was one of the better thoroughbreds of, of his time. He, we, we made, I think, mistakes in as much as we, we tried him over a bit of ground, following sort of in the footsteps of Nordley, but he was a great sprinter and, a, and, a, and a, you know, a really smart horse who could have been trained a little bit better, I think, with hindsight. Mm. But, uh, gee, he was a good horse. Uh, and he still enjoys a great life down at Neville's stud at the moment. But I'd never trained a quicker horse uh, in the Sarabit Code than Morasco. And then along came um, another good horse called Grand Nirvana, who only ever raced enlisted or black type races, mm. and followed up by another grey horse who's still going to the races and being competitive in each of him. So if we talk about Nordley, Morasco, Grand Nirvana, and each of him there, mm. locally bred horses. State state bred horses here in West Australia, and they've owned a, a million plus. Mm. So I'm very proud of the fact that I've been able to buy, uh, be involved with, more likely, four millionaires uh, that yeah. are state bred horses. Um, 
And, you know, I, I, I take great um, pride in the fact that these millionaire horses have been part of my life. Fred, I think Northerlyish fans, and there are many, many of them, will want me to elaborate a little more about his wonderful career. You didn't start him at all as a two-year-old, and he mm-hmm. only had two runs as a three-year-old. He won one of them, the listed Aquanita Stakes with Pat Carberry up. You then gave him a long blow, and he was a four-year-old when he came back. He went fourth, win, 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 and that last win was the Group 1 Railway Stakes at only his sixth race start. Correct. Now, that, I think, was the making of Northerly, the fact that we were patient, and the great but. Cummings, as, uh, as I recall, I had a, a very famous statement. Patience is one of the greatest things in racing, but seldom used. Mm. And and we were patient and we reaped the reward by having the patience to give this horse time to develop. And I think it's something, and I give great credit to Bobby Peters, who's the leading owner in Western Australia. He doesn't race his two-year-olds. And he has remarkable success. So with the pressure of the economy and the money involved today, we we tend to run them early. But if you can be patient, it's a great asset. You freshened him up after the railway stakes with a Melbourne trip in the back of your mind. He ran second first up in a listed at Ascot. And then off to Victoria you go. He won the Carline Cup at Caulfield, Group 2, Greg Childs in the saddle. Third in the Vic Gold Cup with Brett Preble in the saddle. And then he won the Australian Cup Group 1. And again, Greg Childs was back on board. He was on his way, Fred. He was on his way. And uh, with some apprehension, I went to Victoria wondering how I'd measure up over there. And I stood by early in the day and watched him and running a bit of time this day. And I thought, golly, we we mightn't be able to match these guys here. And... um, out he come in the Carline Cup, and he he won comfortably, I'd say, mm. in in as I recall, very close to if not uh, track record time. Yeah. Uh, second up, got in a bit of buffeting early, and um, didn't uh, didn't probably quite quite his bet bet pebble rating that case day because um, Greg was obliged to ride Sunline, I think, at Interstate. Yeah. Brett got off him. He said, mate, I'm not sure this horse will stay. Mm. Anyhow, not to be deterred, off we went to the Australian Cup. Mm. And um, again, he he won in, again, very close to track record time. So Northerly arrived. Yep. And um, I went there with... Um, no, not not confident uh, how he would measure up, but you know he 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 got me through, and um, you know great thrill, great thrill, and a great horse to be able to go there and and win the Australian Cup. I was just you know I was over the moon. The young ones say stoked, Fred, stoked. Very much so. <laughs> well, he had a good spell after the Australian Cup, and he resumed August two thousand and one. And mm-hmm. he won five out of six this prep. He won a yep. Belmont sprint first up with Carberry on board, second in a listed race at Belmont, and mm-hmm. then off to Melbourne and bang, 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 bang. The Fian, the Underwood, the Yalumba and the Cox Plate with Damien Oliver in the saddle in all of those wins. Yes. 
Now, he he had arrived on the scene and he's proven his worth, but there was, there was one newspaper article, I recall. He'd, he'd come out of the winter in Perth and he turned up and I'd give him a gallop at um, Mooney Valley and it wasn't I didn't know many people there and he worked in with a New Zealand horse who was looking for a companion to work out. Mm. And the New, New Zealand horse, who was unfashionable, to be kind to him, mm. um, and he worked with Nordley and they finished on par and the headline in the paper the following morning is um, lucky they didn't roll out the red carpet for Nordley because he, he looked very average in his workout. Mm. He was carry, carrying a bit of a winter coat and he probably wasn't presented at his best, mm. but that was his last gallop before the Fian mm. and uh, he got the job done. <laughs> I'll say he did. Now, following the Cox Plate, you took him back to Perth. Now, whether it was a sense of loyalty to uh, racing in your home state uh, or not, and I've, I've never asked you the question before, he was unplaced in the railway stakes mm-hmm. uh, at the end of November. Mm-hmm. Was he off the boil? No, he was overweighted. I mean, he's had built up such a reputation. I think he carried 60-plus kilos, might be 64. Now, testing my memory a little bit, John, at the moment, but um, there's a bit of angst. People thought, you know, he, he created his reputation, which he'd real and truly earned, but in the handicap in those days, and the railway stakes is a hard race to win, and um, he just he couldn't get the job done with the weight. Uh, so it was probably not a good choice of mine to run him in that sort of a race. So um, he raced game, but, you know, wait will stop a train. He went back to Melbourne in the autumn, the following autumn. He ran second in the CF4. He won the St George Group 2. He ran second in the Australian Cup, and then you pulled the pin, brought him home, mm-hmm. put him in the paddock, and he wasn't seen again till the spring of 2002. He was unplaced in the Goodwood Sprint first up uh, and then fourth in the Memsey back in Victoria. He won the Craigley. He won the Underwood Group 1. He won the Turnbull, which was then a Group 2, and then he won the Caulfield Cup and the Cox Plate back-to-back. And I think that was when he, he was at the peak of his powers in those days. He, 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 was, he was invincible. He, he, he was... He raced tough, he raced good, and he raced great horses, and he got the job done. I mean, that, that I think, was a wonderful period for the horse, and, um, you know, it was, you know, great satisfaction that the horse could do what he did. Not many can. Freddie went back to Melbourne the following autumn, and he won his second Australian Cup with a new jockey this time, Patrick Payne. Yeah, there was a little bit going on with uh, Damien, who um, he was with the Freedmans as a younger person in those days and sort of had obligations to that uh, stable. And there was a little bit of um, to and fro with jockey management, if you like. And in the end, I always had great admiration for Paddy Payne as a horseman. Mm-hmm. And when I got the opportunity to put Paddy on the horse, I did that. And uh, and again, he got the job done. So uh, that was a great thrill for me. You brought him to Sydney after that Australian Cup win and Patrick stayed on. He ran second in the Rand Vet, sixth in the Mannion, and then second in the BMW. Uh, Paddy copped some flack over his ride that day, but he was adamant, wasn't he, that the horse wasn't quite as good clockwise? Yeah. 
Look, that was disappointing uh, on that particular day. Uh, I thought he should have won, could have won. Uh, the fact is he didn't. He got beat by a very small margin. He was still coming back on the line. But it was – the race – wasn't run to suit, but, in, you know, and you're right, Paddy got a bit of criticism um, from sections of the media and perhaps to a degree myself, I wasn't all that happy at the time. But on reflection, Paddy made it quite clear to me. He said, Fred, he had a, a few runs out, he said, and trials, and he said, Fred, he's just not as effective uh, going the Sydney way as he is going Melbourne way. Mm. And, and I... With a bit of hindsight, I look back and think, well, you know, he the confirmation we talked about earlier as a younger horse where he wasn't correct may have worked against him when you turn him the other way. And the other thing is that horses that are trained in West Australia never get the opportunity to go Sydney way, and so they, they, they don't have the uh, preparation and the experience of racing reverse way. And um, he wasn't as effective in Sydney, it's fair to say, as he was going the Melbourne West Australian way um, but again his, his great courage showed I mean we stood there watching him that day and and he he wouldn't give in no. it was a night it was a big war and the race was yeah you know throughout the race it was just tough he, he, he things didn't go his way and mm. but he, he was good he was going he had a long spell after that he came back and had three more starts without winning and you made the decision to retire him. Now, Fred, I've, I've got to ask you about the laying-in habit that he had, and most people thought it, it was an unbreakable habit, but you've got a fascinating theory on this. You believe when horses on his inside shifted out and gave him a brush, he would react by going in and giving him one back. That's right. He did. And um, early days, he, he, he raced in blinkers. And um, he, he'd had that, uh, if you remember, the protest over the, the second Cox Plate. And, um, mm. you know, he, he wasn't the instigator of that interference. It was Sunline who went on in the straight going for home. She hung out. And um, Viscount was poking up in between um, Sunline and Northerly. Mm. And there's a bit of brushing going on, and because Norley didn't give any ground, and um, and he 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 was unforgiving. He just held his ground, and that was where the protest. And I I was a bit apprehensive about that. I thought like mm. uh, this. Um, it was um, Sunline's day. The theme song that day is Sunline's coming home and going for a third Cox Plate, and the crowd were a little bit upset when Nordley, I mean, when they announced there was a protest and, of course, they were blaming Nordley for the interference. Mm. As it was proven in the stewards room and when you looked at the films, it was Sunline who made the first shift and and um, Nordley didn't shift. Mm. Uh, so there's a lot of crowding going on. And then when he, after that, I think he rested, he came back and at Caulfield, I remember he came around the corner and got a bit of pressure from inside. Mm. And again, he was unforgiving. He got the pressure inside and he, he gave it back. He mm. just, he, he, and I thought, this, this is not good. You know, he's got a little bit of a history. He's been a protest against him and they called him laying in that day. And mm. I thought, I think it's the blinkers. He, he can't see him and only feels a bit of contact. He'd rather come back at him rather than yeah. concede any ground. Yeah. So from that day on, uh, I decided I'd take the blinkers off in case there was another uh, incident where you know 
uh, could have been a protest in a big race, and I thought, well, yeah. I'll, I'll take the blinkers off him. And I remember Ronnie, Ronnie Duffersey saying on air one day when Northey was coming back, don't worry, when Fred gets serious, the blink, blinkers will go back on. Well, the fact of the matter is they never did. Mm. Uh, and I, I just – the decision was taken on the basis of he was starting to get a bit of a reputation for laying in, but it yeah. wasn't, wasn't really his fault. He, he, just didn't, he just didn't concede any ground when they want yeah. to get him out of the way. He said, no, this is my piece of ground. You stay where you are. Fred, it was the fighter in him. The Fighting Tiger. Yeah. Uh, Greg, Greg Miles. Miles yeah. Aptly named. <laughs> yeah. Aptly and, named. Um, exactly. You know, it was a fitting tribute to the great horse. You tell me he was an absolute gentleman around the stable. Only one quirky little habit. He liked getting his bum scratched. Yeah, if you if you went to the stable door and showed the visitors who'd obviously want to come and look at the horse and have a look at the northerly, he'd, he'd turn around back up to you and get his bum scratched. And uh, <laughs> he, he, he consistently would do it. He loved it. Uh, yeah. And he, he was a gentleman in the stable. As much as he was the fighting tiger in a race, yeah. you wouldn't have met a nicer horse in the stable. Freddie won nine and a half million. You'd have been happy to scratch all day. <laughs> uh, exactly. I mean, he changed our <laughs> life around, to be fair, John. Uh, oh, Judy yeah. and myself, we had um, what Judy refers to as the magic carpet ride. Yes. Yeah, and um, well put. All, all, all because of a of one horse. It's a it's amazing what a good horse can do for you. Fred, you're in your seventy fifth year. You're healthy, and you are still very passionate about training horses. Johnny, you just paid me a great compliment. Maybe I look seventy five. I'm actually seventy nine, and I'll be eighty on the seventh <laughs> of January. How would so I? Thank you very, sorry, thank you very much for your kind words. How did I muff that? <laughs> Well, I don't know, but I'd be happy if I was. I wish you were right. <laughs> well, you, you only look 75. It was meant to be <laughs> a compliment. You, Thank you, John. It is. I take it as a compliment. <laughs> now, Fred, this is an expression you used when we spoke on the phone a day or two back, and I love the expression. You said, deep in your DNA is a great respect for the standard bred horse, which has never been extinguished. John, 100%. I, I have great admiration for the, for the harness horse. I, I consider them superior to the thoroughbreds on a couple of grounds, their durability, their toughness, and what they are now gaining in speed. Early days to become a standard bird, you had to be able to trot or pace a mile in 2 minutes 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. These horses today have evolved to the to the extent that they can go 148 to the mile, or even faster. In some cases, they can they can drop below 13 seconds to the furlong. They can race three times a week as you do in the Inter Dominion, and then butter up another week later. So, thoroughbreds can't do that. The standard bred is a tough breed of horse, originating, if you like, from thoroughbred. Mm-hmm. Material, but their toughness, their durability, their genuineness, and their ability to perform and increase their speed year after year after year. For instance, my father never drove a horse in a race that could run a mile in two minutes. 
And if you can't run a two-minute mile, you don't take a standard bread to the city tracks no. in today's world. So the improvement that the, that the standard bread horses made and continues to make year in, year out, where thoroughbreds are sort of stuck at a level where records are seldom broken, uh, and no disrespect to the thoroughbreds. They're great animals as well, but, you know, from my point of view, in my experience, in my lifetime and my, my family's lifetime, I have great respect for the standard bred horse. You and Judith had four kids, Greg, Kelly, Karen, Catherine. I notice there are no Freds amongst that lot. No, I look, early days, the Fred Kersley was a little bit of a burden, I felt, to me. Um, <laughs> it was unfashionable name, if you like, at the time. But um, fortunately, um, Kelly, my daughter, has got a, a, a young boy named Fred Kersley, who's yeah. currently a thoroughbred jockey, apprentice, doing a great job. Um, these days, I'm proud of the name and I'm proud of young Fred. Um, so yeah, it's been um, it's been a family tradition, and um, today I'm very very happy about that, John, and I'm um, very pleased to say that uh, the family's had great experience through the racing industry. The horse racing industry is a great industry, employs a lot of people who wouldn't otherwise be unemployed. And the animal liberationists who want to have a crack at the racing business, I've got to say, please get a better understanding of it. Fred, uh, your grandson chose to head east uh, for his apprenticeship. He's been riding in Sydney a little bit just lately. Yeah, he's um, he was on loan to David Hayes um, for the first part of his time in Victoria. He's adapted very, very well, and it was David's decision to send him up to Sydney while the racing carnival was in Melbourne. Mm. Uh, he didn't have a lot of success in Sydney. He didn't get very good horses to ride, but he learned a lot. And he uh, he's back in Melbourne right now. Um, I think he's a talented rider. He's a, a great young man uh, who, at 19 years of age, has taken on himself to go to East on his own and unassisted mm-hmm. and and battle it out with the, the best of the best. And I'm very proud of him. He's doing a great job. Your daughter Kelly carved a little slice of trotting history for herself by becoming the first woman to drive a Miracle Mile winner, a mare called Norm's Daughter. Uh, your yes. chest would have been fully expanded that night. Oh, yeah, great, great event. You know, just a wonderful thing, Norm's daughter, West Australian bred horse, Miracle Mile, doesn't get any better than that in harness. Great atmosphere at Harold Park. Um, yeah, very family was very, very proud, great effort. Equally, Karen didn't have so much success. Karen, my other daughter, she drove in races, so did Kate. They, they both uh, driven winners. Greg, he's uh, driven a number of winners at... Um, Gloucester Park, um, but the business has got tougher these days, uh, and um, they're, they're still involved with the horses. The, the entire family, we, on a daily basis, we we go about our job. But um, you know, um, the family sticks together, and uh, we're still working at the trade. Fred, I would normally be tempted to deliver a very long-winded wind-up uh, following an interview with a bloke like Fred Kersley. 
But I'm not going to do that in your case. I am simply going to say to you, for me, it has been a tremendous honour to have you on this podcast. John, I appreciate the words, uh, but, mate, don't underestimate your contribution to the, the industry. It's been magnificent and it's been my pleasure to talk with you. Thanks, Fred. Talk soon. Thank you, John. And this podcast was produced by Supernova Sound. This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Ingress.